This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, everyone, time for another edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here. This is going to be a State of the Union. We'll keep it to the State of the Tennis Union because when I put it out on Twitter this evening that I was going to do a State of the Union podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a few comments back from uh, some of you people on Twitter asking me to keep politics out of it because I guess I didn't specify that it was going to be State of the Tennis Union. So, uh, yeah, I'm guessing that most of you aren't tuning into my podcast to hear about politics. You know, Jimmy Morgan says, just stick to tennis. Please please leave politics out or I will tune out. Thanks in advance. You are welcome, Jimmy. I got a comment from someone else who said no politics either, but you never know. I mean, I might at some point, but seems pretty much everyone else is, but I will leave it out. I've got plenty of thoughts on politics, but again, I think most of you are tuning in to probably hear about my thoughts on tennis and more specifically at this point uh, in time on the first couple of days of Roland Garros, which of course underway these last two days. Tuesday will be day three. Uh, Still will be first round matches to be completed. Remember the French Open, the only major to begin its tournament on a Sunday. And that was a big controversy when it first happened. I remember Roger Federer, amongst others, was not happy about it. But it's, uh, it's turned out to be a pretty good move. I'm a little surprised, actually, the other majors, some of the other majors haven't followed suit. Of course, Wimbledon, you know, they ne- would never do that because they're uh, going to continue with their own traditions and do it their way. But I thought maybe, the, I think the U.S. Open considered it years ago. You know, you get that extra day of television potentially on the weekend. But I think the cost-benefit analysis didn't quite work out because, remember, you've got to get all the facilities up and running. Although now they're doing the qualifying at the U.S. Open uh, <clears throat> a little bit bigger and better, though it, the qualifying is free to the public that week uh, before the tournament starts. We at ESPN have covered that. Uh, did cover it last year. Of course, this year there was no qualifying because of the pandemic, the Western and Southern tournament took place in that week prior to the U.S. Open. Anyway, French Open underway. Madura, I think I'm pronouncing that properly. I hope I am. Madura82 on Twitter wants to know, why does ESPN show bias towards Serena every tournament y'all cover? Um, Well, Madura, I'll give you three guesses. Uh, The first two don't count. So you ready? Go ahead. Make your guess. Uh, Joanna responds... Joanna Frank ID on Twitter, uh, because she is the greatest athlete ever, uh, D-O-Y. What does D-O-Y stand for? Somebody got to let me know. I'm not that, I mean, I'm pretty hip, but I'm not that hip. Well, let me answer your question, Madura. It's pretty simple, okay? Why? ESPN, whenever Serena plays, will leave a good match if it's going on on another court. Uh, and show the beginning, and show pretty much the entire match, unless there's something else really, really major going on, or it's a complete blowout. But even in those cases, normally, we at ESPN, I'm assuming uh, tennis, and I did not see the match today with Serena uh, and Christiane, who went to Stanford, by the way, Jersey girl, so I love to see her out there. She played Serena at the Open as well, so couple of rough draws for Christy, which she's done well the last couple of years. Uh, we show Serena 
because when Serena plays on television, the ratings go up. Very simple. When Serena plays on our network, on ESPN, you can see a significant bump in the ratings. Okay? So it's very simple. ESPN, of course, is supporting tennis, loves tennis. I've worked for them for 20-plus years now. And uh, <clears throat> they're in the business of running a business and trying to make money. And believe it or not, not all their events they show, including some ten tennis events, don't always make money. So if there's an opportunity that a player is playing, whether it's Serena, Roger Federer, uh, Rafael Nadal, go back to the days, another player that was able to move the needle, in other words, that you could actually tell when his matches came on the air that there was a bump in the range with a guy by the name of Mr. Andre Agassi. Not as much, believe it or not, for Pete Sampras. Of course, when Pete Sampras played against Agassi, that would be a huge ratings boost, just like when Rafael Nadal played against Federer. Uh, Djokovic, it's, at least so far, um, hasn't moved the needle as much. Just, you know, if he's playing a first or second round match, doesn't move the needle as much as Federer or Nadal have been able to do throughout most of their careers. Now, again, I'm giving you the, the, the overview. Of course, you could point to one situation where maybe that changed. Um, you could probably pick one women's match. You know, Coco Goff, for example, when she did or made her run last year at Wimbledon, and then again at the U.S. Open last year, we could see a significant bump when she played, okay, during her matches. So naturally, when Coco Goff came this year to the U.S. Open, we at ESPN, of course, we want to show the entire tennis tournament and the excellent matches. But at the end of the day, ESPN wants to try to profit, make some money in t on tennis, on the tennis events. Okay, so let me let you all in on a secret. Those tennis fans out there, like me, of course, sometimes we, the tennis people, get a little frustrated if we go to a Serena blowout or we're staying in a Serena blowout and there's a great match going on on outer court. It's four all in the third. It's a lot of drama. So when we try to bounce around a little bit when that happens in the early rounds. Um, but, it, you know, we, we, have to take a, we have to take our... our clues from the fact that we in the tennis world, we want tennis to succeed, right? So we want the ratings to go up. And so if Serena plays and it's 6-2-4-1 and the rate, and you know, the, here's what happened. People are flicking around, channel surfing. And if they turn around and they turn on, they don't even care what the score is. They're not necessarily tennis fans, sports fans. They turn around, they see Serena. Oh, they, oh I want to watch Serena. They know who she is. Same with Federer or Nadal. So that's why, okay, to answer Madura's question, very good question. A couple of people commenting to me about Daniil Medvedev. He went down today in four sets. No surprise there. I don't know how my main man, Cliffy Drysdale, hopefully you heard my podcast with him, was, was the last one I released last week with the man, the myth, the legend, Lord Drysdale. And... Um, he, some, for some reason, he picked Medvedev to win the tournament. I don't know where he came up with that because Medvedev, is, compared to what he is on every other service, especially hard court, is terrible on clay. He has a losing record in his career on, on red clay. Surprising because most players that grow up in his part of the world 
pretty good clay court players. Most of the Russians, though they do hit the ball, relatively speaking, a little bit flatter than maybe a lot of other Europeans, particularly Spanish players, French players, and so on. I'm generalizing, of course. But Medvedev hits the ball extremely flat. Conditions in France, especially this year, because of the weather, it's cooler. Uh, it's been windy. It's been a little bit damp. Very, very heavy conditions, okay? The weather changes the conditions there, maybe more so than any other major. Okay, even in the springtime when it's normally played, if it, it's one of those nights where it's very cool, you know, it gets in the 60s or high 50s and it's, it's drizzling throughout the day, those are what we call heavy conditions. The ball doesn't bounce as high. Uh, the courts get a little bit muddier. Slice stays a little bit lower. Much harder to penetrate through the court. Medvedev hits the ball pr- very flat. Okay, and unless you hit the ball flat and huge off the ground, like you have a lot of power to hit it flat. Wawrinka, for example, is a guy that hits the ball really big, but he takes a bigger swing, gets a little more action on the ball. His ball is not that flat. Once in a while, he'll hit a flat backhand, obviously, but his ball has a little more spin behind it. Team, the same kind of strokes as uh, a stay on the man. But Medvedev, really, of all the top guys, hits the ball as flat as anyone. Robin Soderling, if you may remember, the Swede, who was a big hitter, who was the only other guy other than Djokovic to ever beat Rafa at the French and in best of five on clay, beat him on a, 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 a day that it was heavy, it was wet. The Rafa's ball wasn't jumping off the court quite as much with the spin because he had so much acceleration on the ball. Uh, and the ball jumps up off the court, especially a drier clay court. But Soderling was absolutely pummeling the ball uh, flat off both wings and could just take huge cuts at the ball. Uh, and even so, to do that and beat Nadal is still, you know, a lot of other things have to go well. Soderling was a top 10 player, you know, got to the final that year. Was it that year? I think he lost, he lost to Federer in the final. So he was a darn good player. So it's not, even if you uh, have hit the ball flat, and a lot of people are wondering, well, is Rafa not going to be as dominant this year on the clay? He did win in straight sets today, but actually a couple six four sets, which you rarely see. For Nadal on clay early, at, <clears throat> excuse me, at Roland Garros against Jadisimov, I think it was. Um, so his ball is, and he even said it's going to be the most difficult Roland Garros for him to win. Now, part of that is because of the conditions. Obviously, part of it's the pandemic that he wasn't didn't play, and just playing in Rome, lost to Schwartzman there. Um, didn't practice, you know, as much as he's used to. Didn't have the, as much match play going into the French Open as he's used to. Remember, he's used to playing Barcelona, Monte Carlo, Rome. Um, what else does he play? Uh, Madrid. You know, so he's used to playing at least, at least three tournaments, of which he normally wins two or three of them before he gets to the French. Okay, so he need, he, he, Rafa is one of those guys that needs a lot of reps over his career. Now, can he pull it off here? Of course he can. Absolutely he can. I still think he's a favorite. But I think it is going to be more difficult for him to do it here. So Medvedev losing to Fukovic uh, was not a surprise at all. Uh, If you look at the rankings, it was a surprise. But considering the surface and the conditions, Fukovic won that in four sets. It's actually two sets to love. Medvedev came back, battled. Remember, they're playing into the night now because they've got lights and the roof at uh, Court Philippe Chatre. It just looked pretty cool. It sounds like that's been a huge success um, so far. And especially with the forecast in Paris, looks really grim for the next week. Basically, it looks like it's you know showers 
on and off, which uh, make the conditions even tougher. It's super cold. Azarenka walked off the court. Uh, I think it was yesterday in her first round match. It was so cold. They're wearing like parkas. Players are playing in, in long sleeve shirts, like under their tennis shirt and pants as well. So it's brutal conditions for the players. But, you know, as people ask me during the U.S. Open, which I've obviously just ended, you know, you, you want to have a U.S. Open. <clears throat> it's weird with no fans, of course. And they do have some fans at the French Open, some minimal, very minimal. Uh, but at least it gives you a little vibe and a little bit of the sound of this. Wait, I'm gonna, I got my little machine with the um, crowd noise. Oh, that's the music. There we go. Yeah, we get a little bit of that. Yeah, so it's nice to hear that. I heard a lot of that in Rome. The first time they let fans in, like towards the end of the tournament, they let some fans in. I was like, wow, that, that sounds pretty cool. And they were all, there weren't that many. It certainly wasn't anywhere near full. So uh, the other question coming in uh, that I've received multiple times from people, um, and I'll go to Kevin Burke, a KB, who said, his question was, is it time to remove all lines persons and only have a chair umpire and Hawkeye? That's his first question. Um, I think that time is coming. The French obviously have uh, gone against using the Hawkeye on clay because they say it's easier to, you know, you can find the mark on clay. And, you know, some of these, some of the reason for that, yes, you can find the mark and, and it's usually pretty clear cut. I think Hawkeye is probably even more reliable than that. I know there's a very slight percentage that at the time it could be wrong. Uh, but, you know, people just, of course, these tournaments have a lot of money, make a lot of money, but it still costs money to put in Hawkeye on every, on every court. Okay, that's, that's part of the reason why it's taken time because the investment in, in, in paying Hawkeye to put the cameras in on every court, um, you know, as the technology has gotten better over the years, the price likely has come down. The majors, they certainly can afford it. It's not whether they can't afford it. They can afford it, but they have a lot of other expenses to pay including lines people, okay, who many of them are professionals. Many of them travel around the world. A lot of them are local, that, that are, are local to the country. So they, you know, maybe work junior tennis tournaments or collegiate tournaments. You know, in the USTA, for example, you, you have a lot of officials that uh, you see at the U.S. Open that you'll see at big junior tournaments around the world, or maybe they work for the ITF. And um, so... I do think, though, in having the Hawkeye Live that we had during the Western and Southern Open right before the U.S. Open, I thought that system was remarkably efficient. Uh, there were no questions. The, the play moved forward more quickly. Um, we had a lot of questions initially, if you remember years ago, when you could even have the challenge system in play. A lot of people argued against it, that it was, you, know, you want to keep the human element, so to speak, um, into that, but I think that if you take the cost-benefit analysis of everything, uh, I mean, I love lines people. I know a lot of lines people. Many of them are umpires. You know, when they go to lesser tournaments or they 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 work their way up as lines people and they become umpires, there's still going to be that possibility for people. But you know, time does move on. If you can get a system that works better. Um, why wouldn't you use it? It's more reliable. In the long run, it's probably cheaper. Okay, so I, I would like to do, do I need to see the player who wins the U.S. Open or the French Open or Wimbledon make more money? I don't need to see that personally. I mean, they make a lot. They're going to make more money over time once this, you know, we get through this global pandemic. Uh, but I would like to see 
the, the rank-and-file players make more money. So I'm sorry. I, I would rather see the rank-and-file players make more money than tennis support lines people, okay? And, and again, I'm a tennis lover, and I want to see as many people involved in tennis as can be. But they can be involved in tennis at a whole different bunch of levels, junior tennis, collegiate tennis, even the, you know, the, probably the Challenger Tour, the ITF Tour. They'll probably use lines people. They can't afford to have um, the Hawkeye system. So I think there'll still be work for those lines people to, to find work. But in this day and age when, uh, I mean, look, everybody, so many businesses are struggling around the world because of the pandemic. Uh, and I think professional sports, tennis is, is lucky to be back, obviously. And I think that's one area where it, and then it's only, again, it's not a financial thing. It's more just what's better for the sport and what's better for, you know, what people see on TV. The players got used to the Hawkeye Live right away. You know, once they realized that if they challenge a call or question the call, it was exactly the same that they would see uh, you know, that the call was being made by the uh, recording of a voice, of a lines person's voice. So I thought it worked better than um, the system currently in place. So my prediction is uh, that will happen in due time in the majors. Uh, the other question Kevin had, uh, Kevin L. Burke, and a few other people had this comment too, uh, is it time for the men to only play best two out of three sets? And then other people chimed in and said, well, well how about the women also play best of five? Uh, you know, I've gone back and forth on the best of three to best of five, I have to be honest, over the years. I see the benefits of, of thinking about the best of three for men. I, I always hearken back to the London Olympics, uh, which was an unbelievable event, and it was Murray winning it over Djokovic, I believe, in the final. It was Stel Potro played – wait a second. Who was it Murray – I think Murray – was it Federer? No, Murray played Federer in the final. Federer had beaten Del Potro – I believe in the semis, it like went the distance. It was an unbelievable three-setter. And then I think Murray beat uh, Federer pretty easily in the final. Federer was a little bit tired from the long three-set match. And then Djokovic, Del Pocho, I remember, played an unbelievable match for the bronze. So that was an example, to me, of amazing drama in best two out of three. Okay? Um, so that's one of the arguments for two out of three to go that direction that you can have amazing matches. You know, there's been plenty of master series matches that have gone the distance, you know, team Federer last year, BNP Paribas open Indian Wells tiebreaker in the third, but I sort of am still leaning towards sticking, <clears throat> excuse me, with best of five overall, because I think the epic matches, uh, turn out to be best of five on the men's side. There are obviously great matches that are two out of three. There are clunkers that are two out of three. There are clunkers that are best of five, you know, where it's a complete beatdown in the final. Men and women, you know, women's matches. I mean, the women's U.S. Open was awesome this year, two out of three. Um, so there's, you know, as, as my daughter once said to me when she was growing up, just starting to play some junior tournaments, Daddy, why does why do the women – you know, only play two out of three. And I didn't really have a good answer. And uh, the only answer is, well, because that's the way it, it started. You know, that's the way it went. Of course, back in those days, it was because they didn't think women could play as long. Of course, now we know that's absurd. Um, that has nothing to do with it. But it's sort of been the tradition. They did, they have, the women's tour has tried best of five at some time, at some point. I don't think the women's tour wants to do that. 
I think more people would rather see the men go to two out of three. Um, but I think we stick with what we have at the moment. I, I still think that the majors, you know, that makes them different. They're best of five. Um, you know, the better players usually win in, in the longer it is. By the way, the better players usually win in two out of three. I, and I even say to people, look, if you play a super tie break, which you play to 10, and you play, you know, Federer against uh, Thomas Burdick, who retired a couple years ago. Okay, yep, great player, but Federer is better. If they played a tie break 10 times to 10, okay, this is it. You got, this is the match. How many times do you think Federer would win? I'm going to say seven to eight, probably, which is about, you know, what happened, in the, I think, in their head-to-head over years, whether it was best of five, best of three. So the point is the, the, the better player usually probably win whatever the scoring format is, but there's no doubt that you train differently as a, as a male when you're getting ready for the majors for best of five. The game's gotten more physical. I know that. And people, one of the arguments for going to two out of three is that, well, you know, the men will play longer then. They'll have longer. Really? I mean, they're having pretty long careers right now. I mean, Federer's like 39. Djokovic and Nadal are in their mid-30s, still dominating. So that argument does not hold any water. Serena, women's, I guess, is different because it's two out of three, but the women are still playing longer anyway. So I don't buy that argument at all. I say we stick with what we have, and I think that we remember um, – you know, those best of five matches. We remember great best of three because that's what women's tennis is. It's best of three. It's not best of five. Let's see what else I got here on Twitter. Um, not politics is Amy Jacoby. Okay, I didn't do any politics for you. Uh, the ball boy's not having to handle sweaty towels anymore. That's good. Yeah, I agree. Cola City said that. And Clo, uh, Clow uh, agreed. Then cancel everything, says, everyone prefers to watch women, question mark. Federer, Rafa, Novak, TV ratings, and stadium attendance pre-COVID would beg to differ. I guess he was responding to, uh, oh, he's responding to Ramit Kreitner, uh, who said, who, by the way, is a friend of my wife's. Women's tennis want best three out of five instead of two out of three. Also would be good, get revenue, since everyone prefers to watch women. So cancel everything response. I like watching the women play, but they are not as big of revenue drivers as the men. Uh, in general, that's true Over, around the world. That's true. Uh, the men's tennis is still a bigger revenue driver generally. And if you combine all the tournaments and all the countries, now, of course, there are some, like the women's ratings at the U.S. Open this year were better for, I mean, the, the ratings overall for the U.S. Open were better for the women than for the men. So if that happens, uh, you know, every single year for 10 years, then I'd make the argument, you can make the argument well, the women deserve more because the men still, some of them still argue, well, the men, we deserve more because we have bigger ratings. You know, uh, ticket sales uh, in normal times when there's actually fans, uh, the ticket prices for the men's semis and finals of majors, generally speaking, are higher for the men than for the women. So anyway, it's not even worth getting into like a whole crazy argument because I believe this is one of the great... Um, things that tennis has over all other sports men and women playing in the biggest tournaments in the world equal footing share the revenue share the resources everybody wins and the truth is that the the events that have grown the most over the last 20 years have been the combined events the majors of course and also the masters events where the men and women play together so the tennis fan and the tennis public and the networks like i work for they like to have both because it gives you both 
right? So if you've got a stinker that's a men's match, you've got a great women's match, that's great. If you've got a, you know, Nadal Federer in the final, that's going to draw more than Serena against anybody. It just is in most countries in the world. Maybe not in the U.S., but probably that match would, probably be, is, would, would still right now. If there were one match that you said you could watch on TV, that would be the biggest draw. For uh, TV viewers, it would be right now Nadal Federer. Okay, maybe Djokovic, Nadal, you know, but Djokovic still over his career has not rated quite as high as those other guys. No, actually, not quite, not even really close to as, as high. Thoughts on why there are no American men in the top 20, yet there are three Canadians, Daniel says. Any young American men that truly have top five potential? Great question. I mean, the Canadians have some great young players, and Oje Eliassime, although he lost today, which was a little surprising, Nishioka Shapovalov will play tomorrow. He's been doing great. Uh, I guess you're referring to oh, it's rounded. She's not young, but uh, he's been around a while. Uh, the Canadians got some great players. There's no doubt they don't obviously have the depth that the U.S. has, uh, and the women, even though they've got Andrescu, uh, they don't have many others. Bouchard starting to make a little bit of a comeback, which is good to see. Uh, American men. I mean, I think Opelka. Even though he lost today, he was a little undercooked and wasn't able to train that hard, I believe. Had a little bit of injury at the U.S. Open. Lost a sock in straight sets. So sock, sock making a little bit of a comeback, which is good to see. I think what you have, I'll give you the short answer. You've got Oje Eliassime and Shapovalov, two phenomenal athletes. Okay, And they got into tennis, uh, Dennis, because his parents are Russian. And he came from that part of the world as a youngster. Um, Felix's background, I'm not exactly sure how he got into tennis, but he's in there. And, and Roundish, by the way, came from Eastern Europe as well. So these are great athletes that had a little tennis in their background. Um, although it was more Shapovalov than Roundish, but Roundish just got into tennis at a young age. So great athletes. I think you've got Opelka's got a shot. I think Tiafo, you know, I like his athleticism. He's got to clean up a few things in his strokes, um, which he's been trying to do. He did lose a tough five setter. Today, um, you know, had a good, good, good couple matches at the U.S. Open before he got drilled by Medvedev. Fritz is making strides. I think those three guys, um, I'm not sure they can be top five. I mean, Opelka probably has the best chance out of those three, but they definitely could be for sure top 20 and maybe a little higher. Um, so they could be in the vicinity of those other guys, but I think Oje Aliasim and Shapovalov probably just slightly better physiques, better athletes for tennis. Um, but again, they don't have the numbers in Canada that uh, we have in the U.S. But clearly, we're doing, we, the U.S., have done way better over the years for, with, with female players. And mostly that's because we get the pick of the litter for the most part of young, great young athletes go to tennis way more often on the girls' side than on the boys' side. On the boys' side, they'll go to, you know, baseball, basketball, football, uh, depending on where they're from. Whereas for a woman, for a girl, if you're a great athlete, where can you make money? I mean, where can you make big money as an athlete? Tennis is number one. I mean, eight or nine of the top 10 highest earners in the world are female, are female, are tennis players. Uh, tennis is totally different. I mean, you, obviously if you're Federer and Nadal, but if you're Jack Sock, who's a great, excellent player, um, you're, you know, the equivalent of a Jack Sock or a Taylor Fritz, for example, in basketball are making, I mean, God knows how much more doing that sport. Now, obviously it's difficult to get to the NBA and become an elite player, 
Um, but I think they get, we get better young women as athletes because we just get more of them, you know, different backgrounds, totally diverse backgrounds. They say, well, I got a great athlete who's six years old. If they're a boy, I'm going to put him in baseball or, you know, basketball or whatever. If they're a great athlete as a girl, you know, the first thing you think about is tennis. That's the first sport. I mean, soccer is a great sport, lacrosse. I mean, you can play those sports as girls. Thank goodness. Now, thanks to Billie Jean King, a much more organized fashion than you ever could. And you can go on and play in the Olympics and play in the WNBA, but you can't make the big, big money that you can make in tennis. So I think that's the short answer to that. So looking forward to um, Tuesday. It will be Tuesday. It'll be day three. It'll still be first round action. We'll see Djokovic um, on the court. Uh, Halep is already through. She's a favorite for sure on the women's side. Who do I like on the men's side? I mean, it's hard to pick against Rafa. Um, team, I mean, you know, look, it's one of those three guys, team or joker. Uh, something might, something sort of tells me team. I have to be honest, but I, maybe just coming off the open and can he do it again? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough call. It's a really tough call. Uh, Sits a pass, can make a move. You know, I love this young sinner guy, but there's some great young talent coming up. And then Rublev and Sits a pass had a great final in Hamburg. So Rublev could definitely be around late in week two. And he's in a good section. I think he's in the section of the draw with Medvedev. So uh, it should be fun. Enjoy, everybody. This was a solid state of the union. I kept it on tennis, just for you tennis fans out there. No politics allowed. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.